It's Wednesday, October the 2nd, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. It's a sort of a The Old Gang's All Here podcast this morning. I'm joined in studio by Fiat Kelly, Harry McGee and Jennifer Bray, all from our political staff. Everybody's in place, Fiat, because we're actually full of excitement with only a week to go to the budget. Except we're not, are we? No, it's really the most dull uh, lead up to a budget I can remember and we, I do actually recall that we've said that I think every year for the last four years. Yeah, is this Pascal Donoghue's fault? Uh, and is that maybe a sign of success in a financial It It is. I think, look, the stated aim of, of governments in the last 10 years, not just this one, has been to take the drama out of the budgetary process to remove the sense of the big bang of budget day where the Minister of Finance stands up, everybody, you know, has the drama of a people lay bets on the colour of his tie, all that type of nonsense. And because we're in a now more, much more Europeanized system, that that has changed. We now have the stability program update in April. We now have the summer economic statement somewhere around June, which is followed on by the budget. So we kind of know where we're going relatively early in the year. So we always know, well, you know, he is going to have this amount of money to spend. As we know, this year it's 2.8 billion, of which 2.1 is pre-committed. Um, does he pull more out of the hat on budget day? Has been has been the pattern over the last few years. Probably well, you not. Have a story this morning, which is about how corporation tax is running ahead of predictions. Yeah. So last year, if you remember, there was almost a billion uh, on and as the projections when the year was ended, we're totted up. We're actually one point four billion over initial estimates in the corporation tax hall for 2018. But at budget time last year, if you remember, there was a one billion rabbit pulled from a hat uh, the weekend before the budget, which was largely funneled in to the Department of Health to pay for their overspending. At the time, what was explained was that 700 million of this extra money was a once-off payment by one big company, identity unknown, um, to do with uh, global taxation rules, and this wouldn't be recurring. So what they did is they took out that 700 million out of their projections for 2019. But what's now happened is that corporation tax is running so strongly this year that the level for 2019 is anticipated to match, if not exceed, the 2018 level, including that 700 million. So even earlier this year for that stability program update in April, the Department of Finance kind of ticked up its estimations for corporation tax to 9.9 billion. It now looks like it's going to be above that again. That raises all sorts of prospects of what do you do with that extra money. Well, it raises huge prospects, doesn't it? Because, I mean, all the all the wise economic heads said, say the one thing you must not do with that is put it into current expenditure to cover holes in current expenditure because this is a sort of a windfall that we're going through at the moment, Harry, with a, with a boom in foreign direct investment. Um, the global economy, there are clouds on the horizon. There's no reason to expect that will continue. So, But, but it might have a role in, for example, a rainy day fund for Brexit. Well, it, it should have a role in rainy day fund but as past experience has shown it hasn't been used for that purpose and the Irish Fiscal Advisory Council has been uh, warning the government uh, until it has gone blue in the face uh, about using this temporary windfall money which it predicts will probably begin to taper off and fall after 2020 to patch up uh, holes uh, that entail permanent expenditure. So the overrun in health last year wasn't a once off. That extra spending is going to be a recurring feature of the health budget. So they, the IFAC has been warning against that uh, consistently. And I think that warning will probably be heeded this year because I think Pascal Donoghue's instinct will be to draft a cautious, uh, conservative budget because of the overlooming threat uh, that Brexit uh, presents. That said, uh, even though the fiscal envelope or the wiggle room that he has is about 700 million. I think he's going to start looking around at a couple of other things in terms of expenditure, raising, 
mechanisms to allow them to spend a little bit more. I don't think we're going to see any uh, fall in income tax. I think that's been pretty well signposted. We might see some adjustment in terms of uh, universal social charge. There might be some uh, just tweaking on that. Uh, that will give middle earners uh, a little bit more kind of breathing room in terms of take home pay. But if you look at last year... What about carbon tax? Carbon tax will be introduced um, and the IFAC uh, has recommended that it be increased by 15 euro. Uh, I think the Green Party has recommended it be increased by 20 euro. But I think that he would probably go in a range of between 7 and 10 euro uh, per metric uh, carbon tonne. But he might do something like he did last year. For example, if you remember last year, he ended the VAT break uh, that was being used in the hospitality and tourism sector and that allowed him uh, some extra expenditure elsewhere. Uh, But I I think it's going to be undramatic. It's going to be cautious and it's certainly not going to generate that much headlines because I'd say most of it will already be uh, published by the time it's, tra- it's, it's announced on Tuesday afternoon. And Jennifer, is that what you're seeing as well? Like when you're up around Leinster House, there's a sense of it's very low-key, very no drama. There's not, not the kind of sense that you used to have, certainly back in the McCreevy years or the, the Fianna Fáil heyday years, that it was sort of the biggest political day of the year. None of that going on really. Not really, no. And, and I think uh, previously in bygone years, as a journalist, as a political journalist, you would have found in the week or two before a budget that you're chasing you know what's happening in the budget trying to get the scoop and, and being jealous of other reporters when they find out you know but there hasn't been any of that because we kind of know everything that's going on and we know pretty much the majority of, of what's going to come out on Tuesday I mean there is always every year kind of a bit of extra money found like you were talking about revenue raisers um, and I think you know there's it can come in the form of the the usual vendors like booze and fags um, and that can, you know, I think Revenue did, add, did the figures and they found that adding five cents to the cost of a pint would bring in 34 million a year um, and adding 20, uh, well, an additional 20 million could be generated and adding five cents to the cost of gin and other spirits. So like they, these are the areas in which they could raise money. And obviously then in terms of the tax package, I think you'd probably be looking in the region of 200 million-ish. And if that's what you were looking at, if you were to bring down, let's say if we took the USC, if you were to bring down the 2% rate, to 1%, that will cost in and around 200 million. Or if you were looking at the bans, if you were to increase the bans, which is probably where some people would expect that they would go, that will cost around 216 million. So Because if you don't increase the bans, isn't the fact that, that wages are currently rising in the, in the country because the economy is good. So if you don't increase the bans, you actually increase the tax take exactly. from, from the working population. And in fact, increasing the bans probably only really keeps up with inflation. So it's probably only keeping people as, as well off as they should be technically if you were going to try and keep up with that. Um, but the, they are very small changes and they are made in the context, as Fiag and Harry said, of the fact that we're facing this unprecedented uh, external event. Yeah. Why turn of it when you Brexit? Are there any differences of opinion within government, Fick, that you can detect between, say, the Taoiseach and the Minister for Finance or within Fine Gael about, you know, there are elements of Fine Gael that are much more committed to tax cut as a core part of strategy, particularly in advance of an election? Yeah, I, I, there was a bit of kind of a flurry last week um, when the Taoiseach mentioned income tax cuts in America. I think perhaps he laid too much emphasis on the first half of his question. He may have well said the, you know, the loud part quiet and the quiet part loud, if you know what I mean, that if you read the full transcript of what he said, he said, you know, we all have income tax cuts and then he went on to explain actually what they were, which as Jen said, it's quite modest. It's likely to be, you know, Harry spoke to it, the fiddling of the USC. So if the, the minimum wage goes up, that the people who receive a minimum wage increase won't have a negative effect in their USC. You're likely to see stuff like, you know, carers, uh, tax credits be adjusted and self-employed tax credits be adjusted and that's probably it. 
there seems to be an agreement across uh, the government that that is what they're doing. This was course was set earlier this summer around June or July when they really started to focus on the fact that they were probably going to have a no-deal Brexit budget. Like, I know we've had this extended tease about whether they'd have a no-deal budget or not. It was prob- That was set back in June or July. There's no real division. What has happened, because people saw those comments last week, was that a couple of ministers who were really getting their pip squeezed in the expenditure process because they say the Department of Public Expenditure has been much tougher this year on actually saying, these are your parameters, you cannot go by them because we're facing a no-deal Brexit, which they reacted badly to what they thought the Taoiseach said, and there was a bit of kick-up about that. People yeah. briefing against the Taoiseach going, how dare he, when we're being asked to cut money here left, right and centre, or sorry, be modest in what we're asking for. And there was a bit of an issue at Cabinet yesterday. Leo Varadkar, Pascal Donoghue, Simon Covey, the usual warned ministers about their spending plans, and Finney McGrath piped up and said, you know, well... We want um, we want to be seen as a caring government. We want the independent alliance to be facilitated, and there should be no uh, question of tax cuts when uh, public services are under pressure. There's no real division in the government. There is though much more pressure on spending departments this year than was before. I'm a little unclear. Forgive my ignorance, Harry. On what would the difference be exactly between a No Deal Brexit and a Brexit if the United Kingdom had actually agreed had signed up to a withdrawal agreement at this point? Would there be a huge difference between the two? In terms of in terms of uh, tax cuts, commitments to expenditure, general approach to the overall finances. Well, I mean, the problem with a, a no deal Brexit is that it's not foreseeable. I mean, you can imagine twenty, fifty, hundred different outcomes from a no deal Brexit, and no, nobody. So, so, what's different in this budget well, from from if if there had been a deal? Well, what they're doing is they're guarding against the, the chaos that might ensue, and the worst case scenarios. And the worst case scenario is the economy goes on a on a torpedo tailspin and crashes down to earth. And they're doing and that by, being, being, by about, being prudent in Pascal Yeah, well, well, they're also they're, they're keeping a buffer fund because if unemployment begins to creep up, it means that that will represent a bigger strain on public resources and they're going to have to start paying more. Uh, consequently, they'll be raking in less taxes. So the kind of the buoyancy that we've experienced in the past couple of years will go. And sometimes uh, it only takes a very small tipping point uh, for confidence levels to begin to kind of erode. And suddenly you're in a situation that it's 2008 all over again and we're facing into uh, what might be a medium to to long-term recession. Although, although, let's be realistic about this, what happened in 2008, any economists who predict, for example, the kind of global downturn I was talking about earlier, even if it's quite serious, there is no comparison between that and what happened in 2008, which was a cataclysmic global financial crisis of a sort which hadn't been seen for 60 years or more. Sure, but the bubble isn't as big as it was in 2008, but there's certainly a, a bubble within the, the, the property sector. Uh, there's certainly risks uh, from a fall in revenue, for example, from corporation tax, which has become very heavily dependent on in recent years. It's 20% of all our income is now coming from corporation tax. Uh, there is the dangers that would be presented uh, by unemployment going up. So there are all these kind of foreseeabilities and imponderables. And they're trying, I mean, what Pascal Donoghue, and, he's, and I think he's right in terms of his approach, what he's trying to do, he's, he's trying to be able to, to factor in the known knowns and the unknown unknowns. And there's quite a lot of unknown unknowns at the moment in relation to where we're going. Yeah, I think as well, in, in terms of your ask about the difference between a, a, a Brexit with a deal and a Brexit without a deal, is that the government has done numerous studies to look at, in terms of the economy and our growth, um, what the impact will be. And, and one such study 
um, a year and a half ago showed that over a 10 year period, billions would be lost from the economy that would otherwise have been there. Mm. Um, so that's the difference that you're looking at. Now, to be fair, even in terms of a free trade agreement, there was still a substantial amount of money that comes out of the economy. But the difference is quite stark. So I think that's the difference between your two case uh, budget, the no deal and the deal, is actually looking ahead, taking those studies and saying, right, how much, how, you know, how many percentage points will be down? Is that 7 billion over 10 years? What do we need to do to mitigate against that? If, for example, like Harry says, um, corporation tax receipts fall, very possible, uh, like very, uh, that could potentially happen. Um, or any other external factors, like a change in and, and trade there agreements a, a, in the US. an immediate element as well, which is that if certain industries, and we know which ones they are, for example, in agriculture in particular, mm. uh, are faced with a no deal, they're going to require some element of support, probably some combination from Dublin and from and from Brussels. Yeah, the most the most exposed sector, maybe agri-food, will require a huge amount of support. And you would expect in the budget for next Tuesday's budget to see support packages. And also, as far as I know, we haven't really seen what the European Commission are proposing, what the talks are between the government and the Commission and what's the outcome of that in terms of the support packages. And I think it does kind of tie into the point that you made before about these are the external factors. This is what the government is preparing for. And we had this conversation around tax cuts and the, a kind of mini controversy about our Leo and Pascal on, on the same page. And, you know, I, I think the situation at the moment is most people do accept that. Um, when I say more, I say political parties, opposition parties, the independent alliance, Fianna Fáil do accept that now is not the time for that. But it wasn't that long ago that Leo Varadkar pledged that he hoped to increase the, ta- the rate at which people pay the top rate of tax up to €50,000. Now, the tax strategy papers this summer pointed out that would cost £2.3 if you did that in one year. And even if you did it That's over the course... That's what for the election manifesto. That yeah, one, but there, we have to bear in mind there is still a potential election around. And what, corner, he, did, what so. he was doing last week, I think, was... In a way, he was, you know, saying we're not cutting taxes, but reminding people, I want to cut your taxes. So he was keeping it floating out there because it is a matter for the manifesto. I think next week... Probably the more interesting part of the budget will be the supports that they indicate will be available to at-risk sectors in terms of no deals. So the way it's gone, as far as I understand it, the way it's going to work is that this 2.8 billion figure will remain unchanged, that this would be the amount of money that would be available to spend on budget day, deal or no deal. What will change is that in both scenarios, the 700 million will be spent. So in deal or no deal, the 700 million of new money will be allocated towards targeted welfare increases, minor tax cuts, spending improvements. And then there is what people who are involved in the budget process are calling the virtual budget. So you then run into a deficit. You do, we fund the contingency measures with borrowing over and above the 700 million. And what Pascal Donahue will say, as far as you know, is that, OK, this is the 700 million. If we hit no deal, I will, in broad terms, spend or allocate through borrowing X, Y and Z to these sectors of the economy. And as far as I understand, that has been where the, to date, meat of the of the talk between Fianna Fáil and the government has been that there has been much more interest around those issues than minor cuts to the USC and minor increases. So that's where, the real, that's where the real actions are. That's where the real okay. kind of political uh, interest seems to be. And let's not, like you spoke about where this would be with deal or no deal. In a way, this no deal Brexit budget suits the government because you can rein in spending. It has a stick to hold to ministers and say, you cannot ask for this, you cannot ask for that. And it allows them to, to reclaim, as they would see it, some degree of fiscal responsibility after what we've seen in recent years, be it with broadband, National Children's Hospital, take your pick. So in a way, it suits them, even if there is 
a deal Brexit that they've had to shape a budget like this. But let's let's add to this that I would just to say we were recording this on the Wednesday morning a few hours before Boris Johnson gives his leader speech at the at the Tory party conference but I'm going to put my neck on the block here Harry and I'm going to say that Boris Johnson's proposals that he's going to lay out in that speech are not going to be acceptable to the EU there is not going to be an agreement on a withdrawal agreement in advance of the summit in uh, in a week in a week and a half's time um, and Britain will not be exiting the European Union without a deal on October the 30th first, the mechanisms of that and the general chaos happening over in Westminster and courts, etc, etc, will probably all come into play. But the UK will not be exiting. There will be an extension and then there will probably be a UK election. This uncertainty will continue up until Christmas and into the new year. Yeah, I mean, there was already a pre-action from Simon Coveney this morning when he said no uh, to what was being proposed. And it's taken some temerity for Boris Johnson to come out and say this is his final offer. It also happens to be his first offer He's, uh, he's he's describing it as a fair and reasonable compromise uh, and he's talking in terms of this Stormont lock or this double lock uh, and this four years with two borders. But it's not going to be four years with two borders. If it's accepted, it's going to be permanence with two borders because the lock will be provided by the Assembly in, in Northern Ireland. And I can't see a majority in the Assembly in, in, in Northern Ireland that would be minded to unlock it. And what, what essentially what he's offering is another version of the time-limited backstop that, that, that Theresa May's government offered last year and went, which ultimately went nowhere. And it's, it's not, not even that. It's, it's, it's not, not even the time-limited backstop because there is no customs on this. Exactly. It's just regulation exactly. only. Yes, no. it is. Yeah. Well, the two borders, the, the, mm. there'll be a border. Uh, so, for example, agri-food, industrial goods, live animals coming from north to south will benefit from the single market. So uh, there won't be any customs uh, clearance required for those or no post required for those. But any other goods coming from north to south will require a, a customs clearance. So that's, uh, that's the border post number one. And the second border post will apply uh, to live animals, food products and industrial goods coming from the UK via Northern Ireland. That will entail the second one. So you'll, you'll have two border posts essentially uh, between North and South, Here. want to cater for the stuff coming from Northern well, Ireland. Well, you won't because that's not going to happen. I mean, let's not. Yeah. I mean, I'm. Uh, there is ample evidence that the um, that that the British government and those around it perhaps don't understand what's going on behind the scenes. But I think it's reasonable to uh, expect that Dominic Cummings and. Boris Johnson and the rest of them know full well that these proposals will not be accepted and that they won't that they won't lead that they won't lead to a deal and that's the the political maneuvering which is going on at the moment since, is on that expectation since since Boris Johnson launched his campaign that's been his playbook he has been playing for a general election and his whole strategy has been to force a general election and the calculation has been that the Tories will win a majority uh, in a general election based on two things uh, Johnson's popularity uh, with the public and secondly uh, with the prevailing mood in Britain which does still seem to be very much pro we want to get out of the get EU Brexit done. and get Brexit it's done and get out now. It is a genius strapline for their conference whatever you think like you know I absolutely agree that this is an offer that's not designed to be accepted and I thought one of the, the funnier briefings in the UK media this morning was that it's that Boris Johnson's uh, chief of staff Edward Lister I think was sent dispatched to Dublin it seems yesterday according to this briefing if it's correct to brief Leo Varadkar's people on this plan and they were stunned that the Irish government weren't impressed by this plan and they couldn't believe it and then that's why they've accused they then last night accused Dublin of leaking this detail to Peter Foster which seems extraordinary um, but I think that catch line you know get Brexit done it is so 
it is almost up there with the 350 million take back control. It's a genius slogan. You can see, as Harry says, that he has identified that 36% of the population will get him a majority. And I think you're right. I don't think we'll have exit on the 31st. I think there'll be a pre-Christmas election. And I don't. I think it's hard at this stage to see him being beaten. And think, things have come to a pretty pass when uh, the British government is accusing the Irish government of, le- of, le- of leaking to the Daily Telegraph of all newspapers. Uh, yeah, I think anybody with even a rudimentary understanding of how the British press works might be a little bit dubious about that now. Of course, it's ridiculous. You should but, say that Peter Foster, who wrote this piece, is excellent. Oh, he, is, and he has appeared on this yeah. podcast and we hope to have him back on again. Yeah. Oh, no, yeah. he's no, absolutely no, no shade on Peter. He's brilliant. Um, but I think, you know, that this offer, or as Harry said, the first offer, I don't think anybody, I don't think it's meant to be taken seriously. It's not a serious offer. Um, and there's a lot of reasons for that. But one of the reasons is, you know, any of the talks that have been going on about the need for border checks um, and, you know, the discussions going on, ongoing between the European Union and Ireland have always been in the context of a no deal. It has only ever been discussed in the context of this will happen if there is no deal. There was never a situation in which the Irish government were going to accept any form of checks near or at the border as part of a deal. That's absolutely preposterous. And that's been the case since well, day one. Well, this is part of the resiling of the Johnson administration from Theresa May's administration, the commitment made in 2017 exactly. that there would be no customs checks yeah. on, on, on the island. And what, like Johnson in his first... His appearance at the dispatch box before the summer recess now has come and said that because we need to rip up that December twenty or December twenty seventeen agreement and it was like in its entirety. And what he said, what he said was was quite clear. And I just wonder, you know, this whole supposition that people have, you know, maybe he'll have an election, he'll ditch the DUP, he'll come back onto a Northern Ireland backstop. Watching the footage of the DUP Boris Johnson loving in Manchester last night, you would just, you know, give pause for thought on that front. You know, he's, there seems to be a real attachment between Johnson and the DUP. Now, of course, we do, Boris, we do Johnson know Boris Johnson isn't the most trustworthy sorry, person in the world, but you, like, you, 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 you just wonder, long. and like, as Harry's saying, it's so far from what is even acceptable, like a unilateral exit clause and a time limit and a unionist veto effectively on a backstop that's not even a backstop it's half a bake you it's know tr- I'll just, just get to the point where I think because I just think this is all utter nonsense and we're here you know we're watching our own domestic landscape which is incredibly placid and consensual and all that and then we look over at this madness across the water but it seems clear to me Fia, that the playbook is Boris Johnson comes back from the summit. We weren't able to get a deal. We're going ahead with no deal. And Parliament says, oh, no, you're not. And Boris Johnson ends up in a court. Uh, the, Supreme, the Supreme Court uh, rules against him. The uh, request for the extension is put in. Boris Johnson then says, now you have to have an election. You have a confidence vote. And off he goes to the country, uh, basically saying, these bastards in Parliament and the court are preventing your Brexit. Does, does, does the, one of the things, I, I should know the answer for this, but I don't, but one of the things um, that could happen is that Boris Johnson does nothing, that he doesn't make any request of, of Parliament and he simply lets the clock run down. And the default is no deal. And the default is no deal because if nothing is arranged but by... He will, then be, he, he will then be breaking the law, according to the, to the people who by, behind by, the Benak. By an act of omission. Behind the Benak. Yeah. But they yes. believe, I think they believe they found some kind of loophole in the Benak. They seem to be suggesting it. They haven't said it straight out, but they are alluding to some loophole they think exists in the Benak. But, 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 but they may well be, and this is all great fun if it weren't so serious, they may well be saying that in order to flag the process which I've just described where they yeah, end up in the court case to expect a few the briefings again overnight to the UK um, political journalists where there was almost a softening of that we won't do we won't do that uh, apply for an extension to you know 
we don't want to apply for that extension. So they seem to be preparing their own to have to do it. He said he won't bro- break the law. Like I know there is this idea that he's going to he is going to pitch himself as you know the the, the, the tribune of the people versus the establishment. But you you cannot go against the Supreme Court. If but he they, also if they said he'd rather you. die in a ditch. Well, of if you would. look at the noises and the images coming out of Manchester and the Tory Party conference, the whole business about October 31st they were they were only a few weeks ago they were making mugs with mm. October the 31st on them and had clocks in all the offices mm. of the capitals that's now dampened right down it's mm. been replaced by get Brexit done Brexit, yeah. and that's, that's that's the playbook that's the playbook and uh, I, I, the more interesting thing I think to the latter half of this week is okay Johnson gives his speech today sets out his offer or non-offer and then the focus switches back to the opposition what are they going to do? So you've had this mutterings about, you know, a government of national unity, this cross-party and independent appeal. When you include the people who've been expelled from the Conservative benches, there's a view in Dublin, speaking to people over the weekend and earlier this week, that they that is now the next step they're looking for, that do we even know if Johnson is going to be the Prime Minister who turns up at the summit on October 17th? Could the Lib Dems and others swallow their pride and support Jeremy Corbyn for... Uh, as a caretaker prime minister so I think that's the next play this week so the idea that you know the government is going to or the European Union is going to automatically respond to what we're seeing today is, is not going to happen there's much more to play on this process before the summit even yeah, a little bit like is happening over here I think that every uh, party over there knows that a general election is an inevitability sooner rather than later so I think any calculation they make mm. uh, will be partly tempered uh, by the thought that an election is in the offing so if the Liberal Democrats are going to go in and back Jeremy Corbyn uh, in, in a government of national unity, they're going to have to think very carefully uh, before proceeding along that path because that might have uh, blowback in terms of their own potential support. Can I just ask you in relation to that, uh, on the basis of everything we've said, there isn't going to be an Irish general election until some point next year, perhaps early next year, perhaps later, depending on what happens, what happens with Brexit. But we will have four by-elections um, at the end of November to fill the vacancies left by the by the European elections. They're uh, spread across from Cork to Wexford to, to two in Dublin. They're going to be a very interesting barometer for all the parties of what their prospects are. Yeah, by-elections have their own patterns and own symmetry and sometimes they can they can throw up very surprising uh, results and they, they can upset both the uh, consensus view and also the bookies. So we've had independence winning election. I can remember Catherine Murphy came into the Doyle on the back of a uh, by-election 1995. Uh, we've had ones that have gone against the grain. I remember Liam Skelly back in the early 1980s uh, beating Liam Lawler uh, to win a seat in Dublin West. Michael Ring came into the Doyle uh, in 1994 beating Beverly Flynn uh, when Beverly Flynn was the clear favourite before the race. They're usually bad for government parties. They, they usually are, but the government, in between, funny enough, the government bucked that trend after 2011. There was a by-election shortly after the uh, general election where Patrick Nulty resigned. Sorry, Patrick Nulty was elected mm. uh, on, uh, on the back of a by-election. By and then there was another by-election which showed that the, the tide was turning against the government. Uh, that was one. That was one by I think Ruth Coppinger won that. That's how how she came into the doll. And then in 2014, uh, after the uh, death of Shane McEntee, his daughter Helen uh, won the seat for Finnegale in Meath East. But that might have been might have been a large uh, sympathy element uh, to that vote because of the familiar connection. So they usually do go against the government, but they sometimes throw up uh, unusual results. So looking, there are four uh, due uh, on the last Friday of November. And I think at this stage, I think Fianna Fáil would probably be favoured to win two of them, mm. perhaps even three of them. 
and Fine Gael would be favoured to win one. But there is a joker in the pack or two, and you have the likes of Paul Gogarty emerging uh, as an independent candidate. The former Green Party too. Yeah, in Dublin Midwest, and he would have a real chance of winning a seat in Dublin the, Midwest. The one, thing about, the one thing about by-elections is we often all focus on the, the first preference vote. But like, bear in mind, it's a bit like a, a presidential election that, you know, the Green Party, I wouldn't rule them out winning a seat, possibly one in four, because they're... Their, you know, flavour of the moment. Two, Climate change two, is a huge issue. Two Dublin issue. constituencies. Two Dublin constituencies. Which had green TDs, which both had, of them in the past. Yeah, which had green TDs in the past. So you can see a situation where they may not get the highest first preference vote, but as the counts continue, they pick up the, the votes and perhaps take a seat. But I'd agree with Harry. I think even if you speak to people in Finnegan privately, they, they are kind of saying, you look, Fianna Fáil are favourite for at least two, if not three, and they're stealing themselves. Like Leo Rackers publicly said, the most we can hope for is one out of four. We'll be, we'll be looking at those those contests in a little more detail when they become a bit clearer about who's standing and what the state of play is. But speaking to the Green Party, um, Jennifer, Eamon Ryan had a very interesting proposal this week, um, bringing wolves back to Ireland. Yeah, he spoke about the reintroduction of wolves into Ireland as a way of rewilding the population. Um, I, I, he's very I'm not enthusiastic sure. when, when, when about this. When did they leave? When was the last wolf? I think it was uh, the late, late, late 18th century. Late 18th century, yeah. 1786, actually, if you ask. Now actually, that you ask. The la- thank, you, <laughs> thank you, Harry. The last wolf in Ireland was seen 100 years after the last wolf in the UK was seen. So, you know. Okay. And the idea of this is? To rewild the population. And he's very enthusiastic about this, but unfortunately his proposal was almost immediately shot down by Josepha Madigan, who said it would be bad potentially for the environment, bad for farmers. Um, it's not the last you've heard of it, though, but it you certainly it seems to... It might be dangerous for farm animals. I was kind of thinking it might be kind of slightly dangerous for human beings. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, there are large parts of Europe where, you know, bear, there bears wolves. and wolves, but you know, are, still roaming. And in fact, there has been rewolving or rewilding of various really? parts yeah, so, um, of Spain and other countries. And in the US, yeah. uh, in the In the Pyrenees and in the US, in Yellowstone Park, they introduced them in 1995. And the point that Eamon Ryan is, and there's this big move to reintroduce them in Scotland at present as well. The, um, the, the point that he's making is by restoring wolves, uh, which of course are a predator, you're kind of restoring the ecological balance. What happened in Yellowstone was that the deer populations went rampant because there were no natural predators. So they started coming down to the edges of the forest and going into farms and eating everything. And suddenly a lot of the biodiversity and a lot of the kind of the ecological richness was lost. But when the wolves uh, came back in, the, the deer retreated deep into the forest and the wolves had two effects. They, they, they thinned out the population of deer and they also stopped the deers from spreading too wide and going rampaging. And what you saw in Yellowstone was you saw that the ecology did make a very, very strong uh, return. And that's the same argument that he's using he for he, Irish. He for referenced deer yesterday and what he said. The thing yeah. about the Greens is like it's interesting, like, you know, this is clearly one of those what looks like a kind of niche novel idea from the Green Party and they are the, the one perhaps thing which may be used against them in a general election campaign is this type of idea may be thrown back at them. Previously there was one I think immediately after local elections where their city councillors some of them wanted to close the Phoenix Park and rewild the Phoenix Park basically let the plant life grow mm-hmm. wild which would shut it down as a public immunity so you can see how some of these ideas may be used against them there are, It does fit into broader points though about for example that our approach to forestry is incredibly limited and sort of industrial at the moment and I think people in rural areas many of them have concerns about these vast rolling acres of Sitka spruce with just yeah. darkness and no no, you know, no other wildlife surviving And, and farming has become very um, monocultural as well so the type of grasses there, they have very They've, they've modified forms of grass that don't allow... I mean, in, in the old meadows, 
you would have had grass and there may be another hundred different species of kind of, uh, you know, everything from dandelion uh, to daisies uh, to different inferior types of grasses, but ones that were good for bees and for wildlife and for bird life. And now it's kind of a monocultural grass uh, that's good in terms of production and in terms of the farmer's income, but bad for the other kind of wildlife that, 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 that use it. So it's part of a wider argument. One of the big arguments they made yesterday uh, was that, that they need to plant far more deciduous trees and far more diverse forms mm. uh, of, of plantation. I think that's a fair argument. They're also, I think the other, I think the best and most sensible suggestion they had is that every farm in the country, rather than having big forests, that every farm in the country uh, should be encouraged to devote one hectare, uh, which is a couple of acres of its land, to forestry and that the farmers be given some income in relation to that. Because if they did that, you'd suddenly have 120,000 hectares of new forestry all over the country and it wouldn't be as pervasive the, or as invasive the, the thing, as Jennifer, the traditional forest. politically that I wonder about this is that you, you the Greens, who's, Greens who, and we've had Eamon Ryan and we've talked about some of these issues, um, who largely derive their support from, from urban areas are making proposals which will have a, a significant impact on the, way, on the current rural way of life, you know. It will force people to change their lives in one way or another in ways that they may not welcome. They're also looking, as Harry said earlier, for a faster move towards a more aggressive uh, carbon tax, which many people in rural rural areas feel is going to adversely affect them more. So there is, there is, and we've seen it in other countries as well, there is the potential for a new political division, rural-urban division, uh, as climate change moves, moves further up the agenda. Yeah, absolutely. I do think a lot of the changes and policy changes that the Green Party advocate for would affect rural people a lot more than they would affect urban people. But the, the impression that I certainly get from the Green Party or, or Eamon Ryan is that it's an unpalatable change, but that's what it's going to take. Um, now, whether it leads to a division of which you're talking about, I'm not too sure. But it's certain. It certainly maybe could leave an opening for another party, perhaps. But um, yeah, yeah, it, it it is an issue. Um, but like I said, their opinion seems to be unpalatable changes are what's needed if we can't stick to the same things. You know, the definition of maddest yeah. is doing the same thing over and over and expecting different results. The interesting about Paul Murphy's new vehicle this week, Roy, has brought back memories of what you actually speak about, which is the last time the Green Party in government and. With Fianna Fáil between 2007 and 2011, and they introduced bans on fur farming, stag hunting, all sorts of rural pursuits. And this group called Rural Ireland says enough sprung up in opposition to them. And I remember being at the Green Party conference in Waterford on, in 2010, and this these uh, this group of rise people were out the front from like seven o'clock in the morning banging horns making noise like really making the Greens uncomfortable that like you know you are preventing so our way of life there was a previous organisation called Rise which was in fact directly opposed to everything that the Green Party was they were more or less set up and there's a new organisation set up by Paul Murphy in the last week or so and I think you met him and his former colleagues from the from the Socialist Party Harry uh, on the basis that, that uh, left wing parties need to get more involved in environmental activism among yeah, other things. yeah, it's it's kind of hard to explain because I mean, give, for, us, give it a go. Oh well, I will give it a go, but I'm not going to be very successful because when you try to distinguish uh, the Socialist Party from uh, the Socialist Worker Net, Socialist Worker Network, which is People Before Profit, and Paul Murphy's new group Rise, it's very very difficult to discern any differences between them. The first difference is that they have uh, different outlooks on the North. Uh, Socialist Party would be very anti Sinn Fein and anti-republicanism, which they see as sectarian. I think people before profit have a slightly different attitude. Uh, they would would they would broadly support republican uh, causes, even though they would also uh, m- agitate 
32 county parties. Yeah, well. and for workers, workers on the left. And then um, Paul Murphy's uh, new group is kind of in between. It, it wants to become involved in broader movements and the Socialist Party has resisted that. It, it focuses on the party and building up the party and it's also always limited its involvement in, in wider groups. So Paul Murphy has been influenced obviously by Podemos and by Syriza, uh, by Extinction Rebellion, uh, by the climate change uh, strikes, uh, by these kind of grassroots movements and he feels that his group, rather than uh, attracting people into them, could play a, an important role in, in those and become involved with those broader movements. So, for example, if Paul Murphy were in Britain, I think his, his group uh, would, would be within the Labour Party and would form, form part of the momentum tendency within the Labour Party. Or if they were in the States, uh, they would form a... They would be minded to join the Democratic Socialists of America organisation, which is a left-wing organisation over there. And another big, broad umbrella group. So he's more enthused about these broader uh, movements involving lots of disparate groups who share a lot but don't necessarily share all their views. I think um, the Socialist Party tends to be more doctrinaire and orthodox. It will only become involved fully with any group that uh, coalesces completely with it in terms of its views. That needs to be a complete plumb line. So very finally, Jennifer, to what extent is this um, Socialist Angels dancing on the head of Marxist pins and to what extent (laughs) does it actually have some impact on the political landscape in Ireland and the electoral landscape in in the next year or two? To be honest with you, it's it's kind of hard to tell at this stage. I mean, if you look at the local elections, you would have seen that maybe those parties uh, in in that grouping didn't do very well. They had they had a bad day out. I think that would be fair enough to say. Um, and they would have had a lot of regrouping to do in terms of the forthcoming general election. So I guess we'll have to see what happens there. I mean, sometimes the problem can be the disparate nature of of the left. And like Harry pointed out, the willingness or lack of willingness to align yourself with certain groups, you know, the lack of clarity um, or cohesion on the left. So um, that could be something maybe that will come up in terms of a general election. Um, we might even see that in terms of the Labour, the Greens, what kind of pacts they make, what kind of alliance they make um, and what form the next what form the next government takes. We'll leave it there. Thanks very much to Jennifer and to Harry and to Fia. Great to see you all again. Thanks for coming in today. And that's it for today's podcast. Thanks to our producer, Jennifer Ryan, and our engineer, JJ Vernon. You can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, on Acast, or whatever your preferred podcast provider might be. You can also always find us at irishtimes.com slash podcasts. Your views are extremely welcome. You can mail me at hlinahan at irishtimes.com or you can usually find me on Twitter. Until the next time, thanks for listening. 